Hey, well, good morning and uh, welcome everybody. Welcome online. Welcome here in the room. Uh, we are blessed today. We were watching the weather and wondering if we were going to be able to pull off our outdoor services, but uh, sun is out and uh, it's a nice crisp fall day and so we are going to have our services outside. And uh, if you're watching here and you're like, hey, maybe we can still make it, you still can make it. So please, please do join us. We prefer the gatherings uh, uh, together and being with people versus just a purely digital experience. Well, Romans is an amazing and wonderful book. I hope after two and a half years of studying it, you're getting a sense of the depth, the clarity, the, the, the beauty of Romans and uh, we could have stopped at the end of chapter 8, and we would have said, best book in the Bible. We could have stopped at the end of chapter 11 and said, best book in the Bible. But look, at Romans keeps going, doesn't it? It just keeps going with these wonderful chapters, and we uh, enjoyed so much Romans 13 and learning about uh, our role with, as citizens in, in uh, society and our relationship to government. And... Uh, if it ended at the end of chapter 13, we would say, best book in the Bible. But look, chapter 14 is next. And that's where we're at today as we get into now uh, even more practical matters of application of the gospel. Chapter 14, as theologically soaring as chapters 1 through 11 are, chapters uh, 12 through 16 are eminently practical. Uh, it's like Paul sat down to write Romans. He said, oh, I'm going to have this broad outline. I think, I'll go, I think I'll go 11 chapters on explaining the gospel, and then I'm going to go about four or five chapters uh, applying the gospel. And we are in the meat of the application of the gospel. What difference does the mercies of God in our life make in the way that we live and the way that we treat other people? Now, why is this so practical? Why is chapter 14 in particular practical, it's because of what everybody that spent five minutes in a local church has experienced. You spend five minutes in any local church, you look around, you listen, you're going to realize that everybody in that local church, they look different, they talk different, and they think differently about a host of things that could very easily divide us. Now, we don't think differently about gospel essentials, those essentials of what it, is, what it means to be reconciled to God, the gospel, justification by faith, Jesus as the Savior, substitutionary atonement. These essentials are what unite us. You deny, deny one of those things, then, then, then you're not rightly in that local church because you're not a Christian. But for those of us that are Christians, we agree on the essentials, but you get past those essentials, and all of a sudden you're getting out into the land, the never-never the land of uh, disagreement, of areas that are not so much uh, clear in the Bible, and things that we can hold to very uh, passionately, but good people can, can disagree. Be careful, by the way, I have mistakenly done this, of uh, thinking that somebody's important is a superficial thing. I have, I have, for example, teased members of our church on a, on a weekend uh, about their favorite team's loss that week, and I have discovered uh, that for them it is no laughing matter. Okay? So there are some things that are superficial that to other people are very, very important. Other things are rooted in our consciences, rooted in the story of our life, 
rooted in traditions of our family or our family's faith, rooted in our spiritual background, rooted in sins that we had to overcome when we became a Christian, rooted in a host of settled convictions that we have landed on, you put 10 Christians in a room and there is going to be at least 10 different perspectives on so many of those things. And the question is, how do we handle that? Like, do we just argue about everything and fight about everything? Is that sort of the way that that Jesus wants his church to be? How do we handle non-essential things that Christians have differences of opinion on and differences of practice in terms of lifestyle? We know that Paul wrote to a deeply divided church at Rome. We've talked about this before, that there in that church you had, you had Jewish Christians who had grown up in the synagogue and had their whole life had practiced a very Levitical Jewish lifestyle. You have also in that same church Gentile Christians who probably couldn't quote the Ten Commandments, much less any of those Levitical practices. They were steeped in a pagan lifestyle. Uh, they probably went to the, the Greco-Roman temple to worship and they come at the Christian faith from a totally different perspective. You want to talk about a a place that war could happen, think about the church at Rome. Jewish Christians steeped in that kind of a tradition, Gentile Christians steeped in a pagan tradition, now coming together and trying uh, to get along. So how do we handle these things? Do we act like they're not there? Do we just sort of pretend What do we do? I got thinking about how a local church, if if you saw that explosion in Beirut, and that was an amazing video, if you saw some of the videos of that explosion that happened, uh, so powerful. And what they've discovered is that the components of that bomb that went off had been sitting in a warehouse for years. What did it take for that explosion to happen? It required a spark, and then these components of a bomb that had been there for a long time went and I thought you know what that feels like what it's like to pastor a church (laughs) because we got the components of bombs laying around the church everywhere you know and they could have been sitting there for years you didn't even know that there was a problem and then all of a sudden there's a spark and kaboom now you have all kinds of division and trouble and problems so how do, we, how do we do this? Well, Paul's going to encourage us to diffuse the bombs in the church by applying the gospel for the sake of God's glory and the sake of Jesus, pursuing unity by self-denying love, even in areas of liberty that we feel ourselves. Now to that end, I'm going to read, it's a little longer section here, Romans 14 verses 1 through 12. And uh, you can follow along. We have it on the screens or look at your own Bible. Here is what Paul writes now about bombs in the church. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat, eat anything while the person, the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. For who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, of God, in this text. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts and to our church today. We're going to be spending uh, like a month on this passage, so uh, don't choke on all of this here at once. It's a long text. We're not going to deal with everything here. This is sort of our introductory message. But notice here that Paul is writing about what he calls disputable matters or opinions in the ESV. Perhaps it's helpful here to make sure we understand what he is not talking about. And I hinted at this earlier, but this is so critical. He is not talking about anything that he talked about in chapters one through 11. He is not talking about the essentials of the gospel. He is not talking about how a sinner is reconciled with God. He is not talking about how Jesus makes us right before God, union with Christ, new life in Christ. He is not talking about those gospel essentials, nothing that somebody has to believe in order to be a brother or sister in Christ. Those are not disputable matters. In fact, for Paul, read Galatians uh, and what he has to say about anyone who would play with the essential gospel. He has not kind words to say about them. He is not talking about these things. He is talking about secondary matters and thirdary matters and fourthary matters. He's talking about uh, these non-gospel salvation matters on which people who are truly saved can and will disagree. So while this does apply to some doctrinal areas that we maybe would argue about, in view here are lifestyle choices that Christians make. We might call them standards of conduct. You say, well, like what? What are you talking about here? And what Paul highlights are three hot-button issues back in the Roman church. They are religious dietary practices, the observance of a Sabbath day, and the drinking of wine. Those are the three that he mentions. Now look at verse two. One one person believes he may eat anything, and the weak, weak person eats only vegetables. Now, we're getting an idea here of the tribes, if you will, these little clumps of uh, uh, practice that were happening there in the church. We have mentioned here, first of all, food, okay? Food, and what food you can eat and what food you can't eat. In fact, the word here is actually kosher. Ever heard of kosher? Like, you can go to the supermarket 
right now, after the service, that is. And because uh, just bringing it up makes some of you hungry. You're probably like, you know, that's a good point. Uh, maybe I'm going to go. But you can go to any grocery store, and you're going to find certain items that it says on there that they are kosher. I think of pickles, for example. But a better example for this is meat, because this was the, this was the flashpoint, was meat. Jews were forbidden from eating pig. Pig. No pig. We don't eat pig. It's not kosher. I remember when I lived in Indianapolis, we would oftentimes, after like men's Bible study in the morning, we would go to, uh, for breakfast together, and we'd often go to a restaurant called Shapiro's. And inevitably, you go through the buffet line there, and they're like, what do you want? And, and it took me quite a while to, before I sort of figured this out, because I would say, hey, I'd like some bacon with those eggs. And they would say, we don't serve bacon here. And you're like, what? Breakfast with no bacon? You know? Well, then I'll take sausage. We don't do sausage either. Ham. No ham for you. You know, like, get out of here. It's a Jewish-owned restaurant. They don't, they don't, they didn't do that. And that's because dietary laws of the Levitical system, this was a big part of that practice. And so meat and food was a big issue. Look at verse five. Here's now the Sabbath day. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Okay, so we know who he's talking about here. The Sabbath, the fourth commandment of the, of the top ten. For, for, you know, was a day that was set aside in Jewish practice. And uh, to this day, if you go to Israel or you are in a Jewish uh, community, you will find little idiosyncrasies that re- revolve around uh, the Sabbath. I, I recall being in Israel on a, on a Saturday, and uh, we were on the 13th floor or whatever, the hotel, and uh, we had to, you know, the, the, the elevators, you're not allowed on the Sabbath to push a button that goes to your floor. It goes automatically and opens every floor one at a time so that you don't work to push the button. Now, I sinned the sin of anger the whole time because it took so long to get up. But that's just one little example of it. We look in the, in the, in the life of Jesus as, an, as another example of how important this was. Do you recall Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath and the Pharisees, who were the most fastidious of all at obeying the laws of the Old Testament, they, they came and they, they accused Jesus and they basically, they literally said, are there not six other days that you could be healing people? I think one of the funnier statements in all of the Bible. You know, even in Christian traditions today, practicing the Sunday Sabbath is controversial in certain circles. Many Christians are known as what is, this is called Sabbatarians. And they, they have taken largely the rules of the Sabbath and now applied them to Sunday. Many wonderful people, I might add. These are, these are, these are some solid Christians. In fact, I was raised in a somewhat Sabbatarian home. Like, the DeWitts did not eat out on Sunday. We didn't mow the yard on Sunday. Sunday was a day set aside for going to church and napping. And some of you are going, you know what, That's, that Sabbatarian thing sounds better all the time. <laughs> for some of you, it, that happens at the same time. 
The reformers had a word for these things, adiaphora, literally matters indifferent. Not critical matters, not essential matters, indifferent matters. Areas that Christians have freedom, but from differing perspectives and lifestyle choices, as long as they are all seeking to please God, that is the goal. Sometimes this is called Christian liberty. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. And there were two, Paul, Paul now describes these two tribes within the church. He calls them the weak in faith and the strong in faith. And if we go back to, I got the monitor here to help us. If we go back to what are the differences between these two? The weak in faith, these are the ones that eat only vegetables, observe religious days, no wine drinking. The strong in faith eats everything, including meat, view all days as equally sacred, and would participate in the drinking of wine. So let's talk about these two groups. The weak in faith were the Jewish, now Christians, in the church. They grew up practicing a Judaism which was steeped in those traditions and lifestyle uh, practices. They only ate kosher food. They always practiced the Sabbath. The strong in faith are the ones that came from the Gentile uh, uh, perspective. Their baggage was, they had, everyone, we all have baggage, right? Okay, so they had baggage as well, but their baggage was a different kind of baggage than the weakened of faith, the Jewish Christians. These were, uh, this was baggage that was associated with pagan idolatry. But it certainly didn't include the Jewish traditions that the weakened faith had in their background. They also didn't have any legacy with a sacred day. They viewed all days as, as sacred. There was no distinction between a Wednesday and a, and a Saturday. Now what I wanna note to you here is, to us now, 2,000 years later, we look at these things, they don't seem maybe as a big a deal, but these are traditions that are rooted in historic religious background and ethnic background, racial background. You, you put it in those terms, does this sound like a warehouse in Beirut to you? And yes, it does. Now, I want you to realize here that, it, that weak in faith, this is not a pejorative term, okay? This, he's not speaking negatively about that. Faith here isn't their saving faith or their ability to trust the promises of God in their life. They are not weak in character. They're not, you know, weak in conviction. They are weak in conscience, okay? You could take out faith and put in conscience, they are weak in the sense that these historic traditions in their life, even though they now are free in Christ, they continue in their conscience to feel obligated to some of these things rooted in their past. The strong, this is not to say the strong are better, even though Paul does say that the strong technically are correct in their perspective on these things, but Paul's point is that God's concern is not whether bacon is on the menu, but whether, whether love is on the menu. Will you love each other in spite of these 
differences. So to be clear, the weak are the ones whose consciences don't give them freedom to exercise liberty. The strong are those who do not have these inhibitions. Now that may kind of rock your world, just me saying that, because it rocked my world. I remember back when I was in college and I began to kind of realize some of these things. It was, it was a uh, paradigm shift for me because I grew up in a kind of cons very conservative sort of fundamentalist type background where the more lists that you had, the more rules that you had, the godlier you are. And sometimes you'd try to outrule each other. And if you had more rules and you were more convicted, you'd go to the mat for those things. Wow, that is a godly Christian right there. And then you look at Romans 14, and actually Paul's saying it's the person whose list is shorter who really is applying the gospel more faithfully to these non-essential areas. Now, I hope to spend some time next week or the next week on our consciences and how we can actually reform our consciences. And there certainly are things in my life that in the past I would have, because of my background, viewed as like sin, that now I have, I think, matured in my understanding. And I think that that's a good thing. We should all want to be as closely aligned to God's word as we possibly can. But Paul's uh, main concern here is not to say the weak are stupid and the strong are smart. Or the weak are missing out on all the fun and the strong, you're, you know, you're, you're a little hedonistic, tone it down. That's not what he is concerned about. He has rebukes for both groups here. So let's talk about both of, both of these. He starts out with the strong. Notice what he says in verse 3, that the strong are to be welcoming to the weak and are not to be condescending to them. Now, apparently people haven't changed in 2,000 years because this, of course, is the temptation. If you think that you know something that somebody else is kind of not right on and you have the better opinion on how easy it is in my heart, if not with my eyes and my lips, to be condescending towards them. Paul says, don't do that. You are to accept him. Verse 1. What does that mean? It means to welcome that person into my heart and into my spiritual fellowship. This is not going to be a deal breaker in our relationship, and I am not going to look down my nose on you. Now, the example that he gives here is the eating of meat. The strong in faith here, uh, let me give you this example. So the strong in faith decides to have the weak in faith over for dinner. And so they're sitting on the back porch. You know, they're talking about whatever. The, the strong in faith fires up the grill. The, the weak in faith is, you know, kind of looking at that and going, what are we doing here? And the strong in faith pulls out the pork chops. He's about to put them on the grill. And the weak in faith says, wait, wait, wait. I don't eat that stuff. Like, I love God. I don't eat that stuff. What is the strong in faith man to do? Well, he has options. He could pull out his Bible and he can say, yes, you can, look, you can, you can totally eat this and it's so good, I've got this marinade, you're gonna love it. <laughs> Have you not read where the sheet came down and God says to Peter, the animals that were forbidden in the Old Testament, he says, rise and eat, brother. You are missing out, grow up. 
He could do that. He could take a different approach. He could just shake his head and he could say, oh, my poor pitiful brother, how immature you are. You're not as enlightened as me with pork chops. The question for the stronger brother, is this whole thing about you? Or is this whole thing about him and God? What is love's calling? And the strong says, but I'm right, I'm so right on this. That's not the question. Because this is a matter that doesn't really matter. Look at verse 17, we'll get to that eventually, my favorite verse in the text here. You say, but I got Bible verses that show that I'm right. Are any of those verses about loving your brother? Is love a key doctrine? Does love rise above the vegetable and pork chop question here? How can I love my brother in that moment? And maybe shouldn't I have been thinking about that when I invited a brother over from a Jewish background? Do I do pork? Do I do steak? You know what, I know his background, let's just not make it an issue. It's, it's sirloin tonight, folks. And then, and then you're loving him in advance. Don't be condescending, don't be patronizing, don't think your meat choice freedom somehow makes you more godly. Welcome him. But the weak are not off the hook here uh, as well because the challenge for the weak who have standards of conduct that to them rooted in their conscience and perhaps they think rooted in the Bible, for them who see the stronger exercising freedom in these areas, what is so easy for the weaker brother to do towards the stronger brother? To think in their hearts, oh, and he calls himself a Christian. And look at the things that he is involved in. Look at verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains, here it is, pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. There's that principle again. How can I deny somebody fellowship, love, friendship, if God has welcomed him, it applies to the weak, it applies to the strong as well. The strong condescend and the weak turn in judgment on the strong for their lack of spirituality because look what they're doing. What that stronger brother is doing according to their value set is questionable, perhaps even sinful. I wonder if you can see this happening. Have you ever possibly been on the end of uh, something like this? And you call yourself a Christian? Ever heard that? Ah, I suspected as much. You go to that church. And you just sort of feel the, the, the judgment flowing on you. It's because according to their rules-based righteousness, we're not we're not righteous, or not righteous enough. I remember years ago, I was speaking at a chapel at this Christian school, uh, Christian high school. And uh, so I, I arrived, you know, we're getting things ready, and this was a very conservative, very conservative uh, Christian school. And uh, so 
Chapel's, a, you know, 15 minutes from starting, and one of the students comes rushing up to me and a couple of the administrators who are, who are talking, and, and uh, he's all upset. He says, the girl who plays piano in chapel is sick. She's not here. What are we going to do? Well, me, wanting to be servant-hearted, of course, I said, I said, hey, if you have a guitar, I'd be happy to lead some worship songs. Those two guys' face turned towards me like in slow motion, and I could just feel they're going, so you play guitar, do you? <laughs> and I, I kind of like, I kind of wilted down like, what did I just say? Oh, you play guitar, do you? Judgmentalism, condemnation, critical eyes and critical hearts. These are the struggles for the weaker brother towards anybody who exercises freedom in areas that they don't have freedom in. I saw this, uh, this poem, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. So those of you who maybe come to this with a weaker conscience, these kinds of things with a weaker conscience, your challenge is going to be to not judge your brother or sister who doesn't have exactly the same line in the sand that you do in some area of non-essential, again, we're in this non-essential area. Don't judge because somebody exercises freedom that your conscience doesn't give to you. Which leads us now to the question, why should we accept one another? And this is the foundation of what Paul is building here. Why should we accept each other? Number one, because God has accepted us. Because God has accepted us. The standard for the Christian is who has God welcomed? And if God has welcomed them, then I must as well. This is verse three, for God has welcomed him. There's the verse. What a wonderful point. If you're the stronger brother on some particular issue, and, and here's a weaker brother, and in your heart you're feeling this sense of indignation at his or her immaturity, or their lack of growth or understanding, what do I need to think? I can think, you know, you're not as good as me. You're not as enlightened as me. Or I could think about that person's relationship with God and to recognize this is an individual who is under the blood of Jesus Christ. This is somebody that Jesus died for, that Jesus welcomed, that God himself not only welcomed, but will welcome forever in the new heaven and the new earth. This is somebody that God gladly fellowships with. Who am I to view this issue as something that I cannot fellowship with this person if God is fellowshipping with them? I'm so right and he's so wrong, I can't accept him into my heart. He doesn't practice the Sabbath. She eats sausage, he drinks wine. You know what Paul says in verse 17? The kingdom of God isn't about any of this stuff. In a sense, it doesn't matter. What is it about? What should we care about? Verse 17, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If we were half as worried about those three things as we are the preference list, we'd all be more Christ-like. 
So has God welcomed this person? Then I'm called to welcome this person. Number two is to realize that the weak in the faith and the strong in the faith both desire to please God. They both desire to please God. Look at verse six. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, that weaker brother sincerely has a conscientious issue and views that conscientious issue as an act of worship to God. They may not be right exactly. You might take issue with it. You got verses that you can list. But you know what? They are sincerely doing their best to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. The stronger brother, similarly, the weaker brother needs to look at the stronger brother and say, you know what? I know that brother. He loves the Lord. I got issues with him, but he loves the Lord. And to realize that person is sincerely desiring as well to live in a manner that's pleasing to God and is doing it in a different way. Get this, people. Brothers and sisters, people sounded a little non-loving. Get this, beloved. (laughs) People with opposing viewpoints on non-essentials can both be perfectly right in the eyes of God. Because God's not in heaven going, you know what, I like you, you eat sausage, I'm not so sure about you and the bacon. No, he's, that's like, these are, these are not things that are barriers to God's full and perfect love being bestowed upon us. Let's not make too much a deal about them and recognize that our brother or sister is trying to faithfully serve the Lord and that should create mercy towards them, okay? They're trying to fulfill God's will in their life as best they see it. Number three, How do we keep ourselves together? To realize we're family, okay? We're family. Verse nine, for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, brother? Or why do you despise your brother? What Paul is saying here is this tribalism within the church is denying a core doctrine that that is an essential doctrine. And that essential doctrine is, is that when we become a Christian, we join the family of God. And when I'm, when I'm in God's family, that means that you now are, are my brother or sister. In other words, treat each other like family. Now, some of you, you say, my family treats, we, we treat each other horrible. Okay, that is not the analogy that we're getting at here, all right? We're talking about family in the truest and most noble sense of how we bear with one another. You know, that's one thing about family, isn't it? If, if you share DNA with somebody, you're at the family picnic. You could be a, a wacky nut job, and every family has a few of those. Maybe you are that one in your family. <laughs> Looking around, I suspect so. But your family, you have a place at the table. You are welcomed, you are, you are accepted. You've probably heard the old saying, blood is thicker than water, friends. We are blood brothers and sisters. You realize that we have been bought with the same precious blood of Jesus Christ. When he shed his blood on the cross, he, he wasn't shedding it for certain people that you know, agree in these non-essential, and then other, no, it was, for, it was for all of us the same. 
And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, it means that we are family and that we're called to show family love and warmth and acceptance for one another. We are family in Christ. So God has accepted us. Both groups intend to serve the Lord faithfully. We are family in Christ. And here now is a big one. Paul says that we will be judged someday. We will be judged someday by God himself. Look at verse 10. For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every, this is quoting Isaiah, which he does also in Philippians 2. You might, this sounds familiar. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And I don't have time right now to get into the judgment seat of Christ but we've talked about it in the past that, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, verse 1. And so we will not stand before that judgment of God, of heaven or hell. But the Bible ta- tells us clearly that each one of us are going to give an account of our life to Jesus himself, the Bema seat judgment of Christ. And it is going to be a qualitative judgment that he is going to make on our life about the quality of service and worship, the, 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 the nature of our life lived to God, and he is going to reward us according to the faithfulness of our life and our worship to Jesus. I think there are many Christians who somehow think coming to Jesus means that there's no evaluation, we just all get in, we're all the same. No, that is not the case. We will be judged, we will stand before Jesus himself. And what will Jesus evaluate in our life? The answer is everything. Everything. But the fact that Paul brings it up here enforces that how we treat each other is very much a part of Jesus' judgment on our lives. You say, oh yeah, he's judging me about how I handle my money. He's judging me about how I you know, use my spiritual gifts, he, how I use my time and all of that. Those are true. But here, He's going to judge us on how we treat one another within the church. Christian liberty is wonderful. Freedom in Christ is wonderful, and it truly is. But love is more important than liberty. Love is more important than me getting to do what I think I got the right to do. No, I am... That is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. I'm putting your needs ahead of my own. I'm thinking about you more than I'm thinking about me. And unity is more important than vegetables. I I was, you know, maybe an amen on that, okay? Unity is more important than vegetables, and unity is, is more important than, you know, politics. And unity is more important than uh, uh, cultural opinions. Unity is more important than perspectives and practices with masks and pandemic. Unity is more important than the other thousand bomb parts that are laying around the church waiting to explode. Unity in Jesus is more important than those things. And how we treat one another is what God is caring about. And as a pastor, I've seen, I've seen way too much Romans 14 denial in the church. And again, we're spending a month on this, so, you know, we got a lot more to say than we do right now. But I gotta ask you, are you prepared to accept people who take strong stands different than yours in non-essential areas? 
Areas that you might think are silly, but to them are important. Are you prepared to do that? Will you quietly in your heart sort of smirk, self-righteously smirk? Will you get with your friends or family later and laugh about it and scorn them? Will you look your spiritual nose down at them? Or will you realize that they are accepted by God too and see that Jesus himself is their Lord? And they're your brother or sister, no matter what their position on a non-essential issue. If you view your Christian life filled with regulations, are you prepared to not judge somebody who doesn't have a list quite as long as yours or a list that is different than yours? Or will you be like the Pharisees who judge Jesus for violating their rule system? I wonder how many present-day weaker faith brothers and sisters would condemn Jesus for eating and drinking with the tax collectors. Here's the point. Accepting wholeheartedly brothers or sisters with whom we disagree in non-essential areas is itself a spiritual matter. It is, a, it is an indication of spiritual maturity. I love the balance of this statement here and we'll probably explore this more in the weeks ahead. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. May I say that again? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Does that sound like a church you might want to be a part of? A group of people you might like to hang out with and fellowship with? That is what the church is called to be. And we all know many examples of it not rising to that level and no doubt moments in our own church where we, do, we fail in, in this point. But to hold out that as a goal and to aspire to that, that's the call of Romans 14. And we're gonna get into this a little bit more, conscience and what that means and how I can, I can shape my conscience according to God's word and a host of other things all coming up. It's gonna be great, okay? It's going to be great and an appropriate time for us to be talking about these things. May Jesus Christ be glorified in the way that we treat one another here at Bethel Church.